god, that was such like a manic last day. Silly me <laughs> decided to still work that day, and I, I still had to pick up my passport. Oh my god, the worst! Because they, it ended up being held up at the Vietnamese embassy longer than I intended, and then go back to work. I was late to my farewell party. Said all my goodbyes. Then decided I need to get my hair braided <laughs> because I was like, I, I don't want to manage my hair while I was abroad. So made it to the airport. So by the time that I got on that plane, I, there was nothing but relief that somehow this had all come together and worked itself out by the grace of God. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign a podcast that affirms and elevates the stories and voices of Black women living and thriving abroad. This podcast centers living abroad as a pathway to wellness, and wellness in all aspects, professional, financial, spiritual, emotional, mental, and physical. Welcome back to the show, and if you're new, hey, I'm Christine a Black American expat living in, geez, just trying to thrive here in Barcelona, Spain. Yes, trying to thrive because 2020, goodness. I mean, I think everyone has a year that they remember quite profoundly or aspects of a year. And there's definitely probably decades that we don't really remember in that crystal clear way but 2020 I remember everything about this year I think I might remember this year down to the weeks of this year it has been insane so for those of you that are new I'm the host and creator of Flourish in the Foreign and Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love but labor nonetheless it takes time, resources, and money to put on this amazing podcast for y'all every single week. So I'm asking y'all to support this here podcast. There are several ways for you to support this podcast, so let's go through them. Number one, become a Patreon supporter of this podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash flourish foreign. Number two, you can cash app this podcast Cash App is kind of like a tip jar. If you think an episode was exceptionally good or really helpful or just made you say, dang, I love this podcast, go ahead and just send a little something to us via Cash App. You can do that with dollar sign flourish foreign. Number three, you can place an ad or sponsor an entire episode of this here podcast. Yeah, you can. If you have a business or service that's in alignment with this podcast, go ahead to the Flourish in the Foreign website, www.flourishintheforeign.com slash contact and drop me a line and we can discuss how you can support this podcast and also get your business and product in front of my amazing audience who has been just so receptive already. I've had several of my guests say that they have been contacted about their professional services just through this podcast number four be sure you have subscribed to this podcast that you have rated this podcast five stars on apple podcast and that you have left a review let me repeat that again left a review it takes about 30 seconds y'all to say 
this here podcast is my favorite podcast and I love it. Or whatever you want to say. It's so important for you to leave a review of the podcast so that people know that this podcast is great and what I'm saying in the description and all those kinds of things is legit. People should spend their time to listen to this podcast. So please go ahead. If you have not left a review and you've been listening to this podcast, hey, you you know what the deal is. You are a veteran. You are seasoned now. Go ahead and write that review today. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Number five, please be sure to share, share, share this podcast. I mean, in times like this in which the world is just interesting, we'll say. That's the best word. That's the most diplomatic word. The world is interesting. People are feeling antsy, a little bit nervous. This is a podcast that helps to let people know that one that their wellness is so important, especially as black women, our wellness is so important. And our wellness can really be just kickstarted by living abroad. And if you have ever thought about living abroad, this is what this podcast does. It gives you this amazing anecdotal information about what it's really like living in these places. So share this with a friend or a colleague or, hey, maybe you have a whole newsletter of your organization. Why don't you go ahead and tell them to listen to this? Because let me tell you, this podcast centers black women that I have had reviews and I've had comments from a lot of people that do not identify as black women and they love this podcast. Don't just hoard this podcast. No, share the love. Go ahead and share this podcast with a friend, an acquaintance, maybe if somebody you don't like, but just be like, you know what, today I'm going to do right and I'm going to I'm going to send you this podcast. And you know, that's your civic duty for the the rest of the week. There you go. You're done. Number 6, Make sure that you are following the podcast. Yes, on Instagram, especially because that is where I drop new information about the podcast. Follow the podcast at Flourish Foreign, Twitter Flourish Foreign, Facebook Flourish Foreign. That's where you can find everything. And as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I am maybe for new listeners. I'm a business strategist. That is how I stay in Barcelona. I work for myself. I have my own business. And a new aspect of my business is really catered towards Black women and women of color, really trying to help these women to leverage their talents and their expertise into viable online businesses so that they can pursue their dreams of going abroad. Now, viable online businesses really refer to you freelancing business or consultancy business. That is my wheelhouse. And that's what I help women do. You know, going abroad is fantastic. But like I said, this podcast is about wellness. And you cannot be well if you are not professionally well, if you're not financially well. And so my services really center around just being professionally fulfilled by doing what you want to do and being financially abundant making the money that you're trying to make while living wherever you want to live. Now, if this is interesting to you, please hit me up. You'll learn more about my services at www.christinejobe.com. So definitely check me out. All right, that wraps up the support portion of this here podcast. On to the next story. 
Today's story is fantastic. Like I always say, I mean, I say this every week, but it's true. I'm sorry. My guests are fantastic. What do you want me to say? This week's guest is Itia and how she ended up abroad and why she ended up abroad. I think very fascinating, but I'm going to let her tell you all about it. My name is Itia Thomas and I am 35 and I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and I currently live in Brisbane, Australia. I left the States when I was 30 and traveled for eight months. By the time I landed here in Australia, it was literally a couple of days before my 31st birthday. My mother was always very encouraging of me following my dreams and doing things that made me happy. She understood from a very young age that I was quite an independent person and was thankfully willing to let me go to boarding school when I came home, really excited about that opportunity. I went to a boarding school when I was about 13 in Massachusetts. That was really quite formative for me in terms of meeting people from various countries and being exposed to a lot of different sports and opportunities. That's when I started traveling internationally, and it's kind of been a bug ever since. I've traveled to hmm, about 54 countries by now. I asked Itia to tell me, what was it like going to boarding school? I felt really comfortable being there because I found a family, not quite my own, but a family of um, friends and, and teachers there as well. I never felt alone while I was there. I think boarding school was one of the best decisions of my life and in the trajectory that it sent me down. And I, I am a major proponent of it. It cultivates that sense of independence or strengthened it for me. And it was in an environment where everyone has such amazing talents and it was actually really friendly. There weren't many women of color there, but there were. And we're still very close friends to this day, as well as many other friends that I met there. My high school friends, I'd say, are some of my closest friends because we were together during those formative years. For me, it wasn't difficult <laughs> to be there. It was about five hours away, but I was really immersed in enjoying my experience there, and I loved it and would do it again and again. I went to Brown. My degree was in urban studies with a focus in the built environment, and I was always very interested in urban landscapes and cities and how people use space and, and architecture. So that was one of my drivers. I studied uh, Japanese while I was there. And that started in high school, continued in college. I did study abroad in Japan for about four months. And some of the things I studied there besides language was Japanese architecture and post-World War II history and spend a lot of time roaming around in the streets and it's one of my favorite things to do while I'm traveling in general. I stayed with a host family while I was there in Japan, which I think that was definitely the key difference. We went to places on the weekends, we had dinner every night together. They were retired. They were able to spend plenty of time with me, which was great. Going abroad while in, in college was, was definitely a highlight and was my first time living abroad and definitely opened my eyes to wanting to have that experience again. I'd say the thing that <laughs> probably 
delighted me the most of the Japanese culture is how cognizant of space they are <laughs> in terms of、um, how much space they take up and、uh, what their impact is to someone else. <laughs> the trains, people were, were quiet and were mindful and respectful, even though they're like, really grouted. If there was something that someone dropped, someone else would like, run behind them and pick it up and put it in their pocket. People were just really aware of yeah, their environment and each other. And there was just a, a respect that was there, that was understood, that I was in awe of and really wish could have brought back that mannerism to the States. It was really tiring speaking and actively listening in another language. Because I was with a host family, I couldn't just have class in Japanese and then come home and switch off.、Uh, that would be rude. <laughs> Had to maintain that while at home. I think it was always interesting and funny to see people's responses when I did understand and could speak Japanese, <laughs> although, albeit not amazing and fluent. I knew enough to be able to you know, understand what was going on. It always took people by surprise, which was always was funny. <laughs> it was a great experience. One of the things that I didn't expect was to. Spend as much time in school as we did. I, I thought it would be a bit more of an immersion experience in that sense, like, but we were constantly in class. They're very strict about always studying.、Uh, my friends、uh, were studying abroad in Spain when they were constantly on school trips and partying out late, late at night, not really attending class. And so they were having a ball, whereas I was a very studious <laughs> experience. So if there was anything I could have changed about that, it would have been that. School wasn't as stringent as it was, <laughs> and that I could actually spend more time experiencing Japan. I wanted to know how her career progressed after university. After I graduated Brown, I moved down to Northern Virginia to Alexandria. I started out in DC in commercial construction project management, and in that space, I was able to. Kind of have a variety of projects. I was gaining breath in terms of building ooh, a morgue, <laughs> a office building, some banks, just data centers. At that point, being quite client side oriented, really getting a chance to, to work with the architects and, and help influence the design and thus what actually got built. That was really cool, just kind of. Moving along the ranks with that, I was able to move to、um, San Francisco with the same company. And then, being in construction, that's what allowed me to move abroad to Australia to get a start here in terms of being a skilled migrant. That was a, a valuable skill.、Uh, my career has allowed me to transition to different states and countries. I was really happy with that, even though when I came to Australia, it wasn't the same company. In terms of how I've evolved as a, as a person or in life, I'd say. As I started to get deeper in my career in commercial construction, it was something that ultimately felt misaligned. And I had a personality mismatch <laughs> with the industry. It was more that I was something, someone who's really quite efficient and logical, and there was not a lot of that at times.、Um, it was very political at times, and that was just yeah, not my, my vibe. And I didn't always feel like that I was healthy. In that space,、I、was working a lot of hours. It was really intense, really quite stressful. You can't really mess up when you're building a hospital. <laughs> People's lives are at stake. It is a bit of a high stress environment. But I guess in general, I didn't think people always spoke to each other really well. <laughs> For me, I didn't feel like I could be my happiest, greatest self in the industry and, and continue to lead people in that space when I wasn't happy in it. 
them forever grateful that I was able to move countries and states and was able to you know, to build uh, buildings that were impactful for <laughs> for the lives of others. But ultimately, it was an industry that I needed to step away from. Now, IT's journey to going abroad is really interesting. And so I asked her to describe her journey abroad. I was traveling in the Mediterranean for 24 days on a cruise. And that was such an amazing experience that by the time I got back to DC, I was like, I have to figure out how I can do this more often. So then the next year, I decided to travel a bit more. I still wasn't fixing that itch for me. I moved to San Francisco. And for me, I was trying to figure out if San Francisco moving there would either make me want to stay in the country. That was what I was trying to assess when I was there. While I was having a ball, it became pretty clear. I was feeling still quite restless. I was like, yep, I enjoy San Francisco, but I at least know that I wouldn't stay because of San Francisco. That's when I just started kind of going into research mode and started to figure out, okay, what are the conversations I need to have with work, with my landlord to break my lease? <laughs> what is it that I need to do to start uh, researching and being prepared? Because at that point, I wasn't dead set on moving abroad per se. I was just like, I want to go on a long-term trip. <laughs> and then as I started researching more and more, I was like, yep, no, I actually want to move abroad and set my sights on Australia. I know that I had to go before my 31st birthday. It would be in January 2016. If I work backwards, then I need to make sure that um, I am in by December you know, of 2015 in Australia because I want to see the fireworks in Sydney. Okay, Australia is far. I want to be able to do some traveling beforehand. When do I need to leave in 2015 to be able to feel I have significant travel in before I get to Australia? Because I know once I get to Australia, I'll have one year of that visa and I wanted to spend that time in Australia. I asked for a sabbatical from work for 10 months and I literally started selling everything that I could and boxing up what I, you know, felt I would want to be sent to me if I definitely, you know, landed in Australia and decided I wanted to stay in Australia. I wanted to know about the last day Itia was in San Francisco, right before she embarked on this world tour. By the time I left, oh God, that was such a manic last day silly me, <laughs> decided to still work that day. I went to work in the morning, legit actually worked, and I still had to pick up my passport. Oh my God, the worst. Because they, it ended up being held up at the Vietnamese embassy longer than I intended. I had to go pick up my passport. Mind you, this is the day I'm leaving. And then go back to work. I was late doing that. I was late to my farewell party had my lunch, then went back to work, said all my goodbyes to everyone, then decided I need to get my hair braided <laughs> because I was like, I, I don't want to manage my hair while I was abroad. I ran, got my hair braided. That takes, <laughs> I don't know, four five hours. Literally had takeout at the end of it, ran and hugged my last friend, made it to the airport. Another friend met me there in the airport. We had a send off as well. And literally that was the most manic last day i will never ever do that <laughs> again i don't know what possessed me but by the time that i got on that plane i there was nothing but relief that somehow this had all come together and worked itself out by the grace of god the only thing i booked for myself when i left the united states was a one-way ticket to thailand for seven days at a retreat that I was starting off with fasting and meditation and yoga, and that's how I was starting off my trip. I did not book anything else besides that. And that was intentional um, because I really wanted to 
see where life took me. <laughs> I had an idea of the route kind of that I wanted to go in, but didn't book anything. I arrived in Thailand just completely drained, but happy that I was going to be starting kind of with a practice that was going to put me in a space to start my trip. I was chasing summer and summer and architecture and festivals. That was what was helping <laughs> guide my route. So I left in it's April of 2015. It was, it was springtime. I was in Asia for two months, four months in Europe, another two months in Asia as I worked my way down to, to Australia. I wanted to know, how did she end up in Australia? Sydney was a place I visited in 2013. And I felt an immediate connection to Sydney when I visited then. I remember being on this walk from Bondi to Kuji, these two beaches. And I remember texting with a friend that I, I think I found the place that I want to live. It was just such a, a deep and immediate connection with it between the vibe. It didn't feel that different from San Francisco. I thought it was just geographically really pretty. I could see myself there. And I, I saw neighborhoods that I was interested in living in. That was really key for me as well. I picked out my favorite wine bar that I would spend time at. I could already envision myself there. When I came back to the States, basically between 2013 and 2015, that was my time where I was back in D.C. for a bit and in San Francisco and then traveling. It was just evaluation of like, was that just me living the high of being on vacation? Or is that something that I, I well and truly am still motivated to do? And for me, the answer was still yes. I feel like Sydney chose me almost. The only thing that I had really done to prepare for Australia before actually getting here was um, getting my visa. <laughs> I got my visa, a one-year working holiday visa, and it wasn't until about two weeks before arriving in Australia did I actually start to be like, oh, I guess I have to look for some accommodation and stuff. Really, what I started to realize is that Sydney is a major place for people to come for New Year's. And at that time, <laughs> the hostels have basically like two-week minimums, almost, or one-week minimum for you to stay, and they jack the prices up. Here I am, just before arriving in Australia, not actually having a place to stay. <laughs> to be honest, with you, I wasn't sure if I was wanting to stay in Sydney or Melbourne. I had been in my research, I was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll give Melbourne a second look. At first I was thinking, okay, I will spend two weeks in Sydney and then I'll spend two weeks in Melbourne. And from there I'll decide which one I actually want to live in. That was what my thought process was two weeks prior to arriving in Australia. Thankfully, I had a friend who I met super randomly we happened to sit next to each other on a bus a year prior and within minute two we were both saying how interested we were moving to australia anyway she had moved to australia before i did and was my kind of connection here i was like hey oh my god can i stay at your house and she's like i'm actually not there i'm back in the states but let me just check in with my flatmate and make sure it'd be okay for you to stay in my room while i'm in the states and thankfully, her flatmate came back and said that was fine. She was like, you can stay here for one week until I come back. And I was like, okay, well, one week is good. I can do that. It wasn't until the two days before I got on a plane to arrive basically on the 27th of December <laughs> into Sydney did I decide that I was like, you know what? I felt really strongly about moving to Australia because of the experience I had in Sydney, not the experience I had in Melbourne. Let me just full on give it a go and move to Sydney. And if for some reason I'm not liking it, then I'll explore Melbourne. When I got to Sydney, I just threw myself into looking at websites to try to find a, someone who was looking for a flatmate because I had a week at my friend's house. 
and then literally she was about to come back and i like begged her i was like can i just stay on your couch during this next week because just before she got back literally i found a place but they were like okay you can't move until january 10th she allowed me to stay on the couch for another week until the place that I wanted to stay at was available. That was my start. And I already knew I wasn't going to have a job for my like first six months or so because I didn't want to work, wanted to get entrenched in the lifestyle, potentially start my own business. So my first six months was focused on how do I do that? <laughs> I've never done this before. And, my, and I've never done it in a foreign country. And, and I don't know anyone here except for this one friend who we, we didn't actually connect with all that much once I was here. She was crazy busy and never really had time to really hang out with me. I spent a lot of my time actually going to meetups to get to know people. There were either meetups with women and meetups with like entrepreneurs. I spent a lot of time going to entrepreneur hubs and listening to talks and, and meeting other entrepreneurs because in general, love the energy of entrepreneurs and, and the openness and just how entrepreneurs think. I spent a lot of time in that space. And I'd say in, in that time period, I just got to know yeah, a lot of people who are still very close friends to this day that I made in my first six months. The six month time period was like, okay, how, how can I get this business started? Because that was going to be one of the ways that I thought I could actually be able to stay and didn't have to go back into construction. But lo and behold, that was not going to work out because they changed the laws. I couldn't self-sponsor through my own company. I, I wasn't el eligible to kind of come in on my own marriage. I was a skilled migrant because my undergraduate wasn't in construction management. It was in urban studies. I couldn't come in completely without having to be sponsored by a company. So towards the end of my first six months, it was like, okay, I need to figure out how to shelve my company that I've started and get a job in construction that I can get sponsored and start working for a company in this last six months that I don't have to go back to America. <laughs> I, I know it sounds actually now that I'm recounting this story that I was very haphazard in all that I've done, but I'm actually quite a calculated person. The planning that I did was actually pretty unreal <laughs> in terms of preparing myself to leave, but I was really quite open as to what happened after the fact. And I knew that I had savings and I was intelligent enough and flexible enough that I would be able to figure it out. And worst case is that I ended up back at a job in San Francisco, which was not going to be a bad option. <laughs> but the, this first six months and the second six months looked very different from each other here in Australia. I wanted to know how Itia went about finding a job in Australia in her industry. It was primarily between job boards, job boards and recruiters. So... And anyone that I could find that knew someone who knew someone. <laughs> I'm not shy. I'm very willing to put myself out there and saying that this is what I'm looking for. Seek.com is a seek.com.au is a big job board that's here indeed as well. I had some connections in the States with some people like for Dongzang and LaSalle. I was like, hey, do you have anyone that I can that you can put me in touch with um, here in Australia? reaching out to existing contacts with that. But how I ended up actually finding my job was through a recruiter. And I was paying attention to the job boards and seeing which recruiters, which companies were um, putting out the kinds of jobs that I was interested in. And then I'd contact those recruiters directly and say, hey, this is what I'm after. A job that I applied for, that job wasn't the one that the recruiter thought that I'd be. He, he basically was like, hey, there's another job that I think you'd be even like, more suited for. And he put me forward for that. I will say, like, I very much had to negotiate the terms myself, or rather I felt more comfortable to negotiate because 
this is not really a culture where people push for things. I may, I don't know if it's my New York ways or whatever, but I'm not someone that takes no very lightly. So I had to definitely negotiate my salary and definitely prove that I had the experience because there was a lot of translation, although we're all speaking English, there's still translation of titles and experience that I had to do, like literally at times drawing on a whiteboard for them to understand the experience that I had. And I had to negotiate the terms of me you know, being sponsored by them as well, because at first they were only going to offer a six-month position. And I was like, no, I need a full-time position and I need you to sponsor me. <laughs> like, but those are all things that I had to negotiate myself. The recruiter wasn't willing to put me forward for the amount that I said that I wanted to be put forward to. I was like, please step aside. Thank you for getting me in the door. I will finish this. Thanks. <laughs> in terms of the construction climate and and work culture here. Actually, I didn't find it to be all that different, which is unfortunate. I was hoping that it would be. I feel like construction is just a different beast in itself, and it doesn't really matter what country you're in (laughs) or what side of the coin you're on. It's a tough, it's a rough industry. So I feel like it transcends location. (laughs) I wasn't completely comparing apples to apples in the sense that I was now, I was on the owner's rep side working with a government agency before I was on um, the builder side working with public and private entities. I was able to get closer to working not 12, 14 hour days. I was able to get closer to working nine, 10 hour days, <laughs> but still it was a lot. I'd say there were still things that were, were misaligned here. I think it was like, oh, maybe construction will be different here. Maybe I will like it better being in a different country and on a different side of the coin. But while I loved the companies that I worked for, that's never been the issue. I think it was more of an industry-level mismatch. I asked Aitia, at what point did she feel settled into Australia? It really wasn't until I got permanent residency. And that was February 2018, two years in. While my day-to-day life was fine, I felt at any moment, if they came back and said, no, you didn't get permanent residency, that was my third attempt in terms of, not third attempt of permanent residency, but third attempt to be able to stay in the country. I tried to self-sponsor with my own company and I tried to um, get in by not having to be sponsored at all. And now, so this is my third attempt. And if that didn't work, you have 28 days, I think, to leave the country. And that was part of the reason why I didn't get my own place and just stayed with someone else. Because I didn't, like, here you have to buy your own refrigerator and, and washing machine and stuff. Like, you have to furnish a place. And I was like, oh my God, there, there's no way that I can sign a lease and furnish a place and definitely decide that I'm going to stay in this industry or even think about moving from my job because my sponsorship was tied to me being at this job. The moment I found out, I had to like pull over because I was in absolute tears. I just felt like there was just such a, a weight and a freedom that was lifted because I no longer was tied to this job. I just felt like I, they couldn't be taken away from me. I could be here. If I did want to look for a, a place to stay, I could lease. Or if I now I was eligible to buy property if I wanted to. It was the first time I actually put something on the wall in my room because I was like, oh, I don't have to move. I don't need to take things off the wall. It was just... I hung up one thing on the wall that day (laughs) when I got home because I felt like I could actually stay here and it wasn't going to be at a moment's notice that 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 could be taken away. I wanted to know more about the permanent residency process in Australia and I asked Aitia to describe it 
and I asked Aitia to walk me through it. My process is probably easier than what a lot of other people would probably have to go through. And that's because my skill was on their skills shortage list of like, yeah, what they basically deem as not having enough people in Australia to fill that role, which is project management. At first, I went at it alone because it just looked pretty straightforward. <laughs> but then I realized that the code that I was initially applying for <clears throat> wasn't going to be something that I was going to be eligible to get permanent residency under because I didn't have an undergraduate degree in construction management. Like I had a, a phone call with a, an immigration agent just to understand the code that I can apply under. Because I did a lot of the paperwork myself, I worked with another agent. She just really had to look it over and make sure that it was conforming. And she worked with my employer to make sure that they had all their ducks in a row as well to be able to go through the sponsorship process with me. It was about, you had to go through a third party assessment to basically confirm that yes you have the skill set that you say you have it wasn't a test or whatever but they basically looked through all your credentials and your um, degrees and your work history i was able to actually apply directly for permanent residency a lot of people who come over like from my working holiday visa and a lot of people have to come over do sponsorship maybe for two years for a company before they are eligible to start applying for permanent residency but because of the visa class i was under and the fact that I was a skilled migrant, I was able to apply directly for permanent residency. That cut out two years of the process. Then it was just a waiting game to for them to come back to me on that. And then all of a sudden, one day I said, it was just granted. I was really lucky in that sense. That was really nerve wracking, trying to go online and see if there was any progress. No one's contacting you. From the moment that I uh, submitted to get assessed, Assessment took about three months, and then you have to pass assessment before you can actually submit for your permanent residency papers. Then from permanent residency papers to actually hearing back, that was 14 months um, before it actually got granted. That was the permanent residency process for me. I became eligible to apply for citizenship pretty much by the time I hit my fourth year in Australia because you have to have permanent residency at least one of those four years, in which case I had it for two years and I'd been living in the country for four years and other requirements. You can't have been out of the country for a certain number of days in a certain period of time. The citizenship stuff was pretty easy. Once I just showed my eligibility to apply for citizenship, that within three months, two, three months of that, and then I got a notification for me to be able to sit for my citizenship test and kind of interview that was supposed to be the 22nd of may but because we can't do any of that in person i am now indefinitely postponed <laughs> i'm not sure quite when i'll have the opportunity to sit for the test and the interview but then basically the next step after that is you kind of wait for up to six months before you can get invited to the ceremony and that's when you actually become a citizen and then from there you can apply for your passport I asked Aitia about her experience being a black woman traveling abroad. I uh, probably preface this by saying that being in boarding school and college and DC, although people consider it chocolate city, it's actually so, like I've already was really quite used to being in the minority. I didn't feel that was really any different (laughs) by moving to Australia. I felt my life experiences had prepped me for that. I didn't really find that to be drawing. 
traveling has prepped me for that because there are not as many black women traveling that you see as well. I know that we're for sure, we exist. I even have a Facebook group. It wasn't really a, a jarring experience. Yes, you'll get looks. That's what people do. <laughs> so, and, and I don't know whether to attribute that necessarily to me being black, me being a woman. They might find something that I'm wearing that day intriguing. Something about my yeah appearance. The fact that I'm my boyfriend is an older white male and we're in an interesting like, mix of our family dynamic with his children as well. I mean, people can be looking at me for any number of those reasons. <laughs> I have no idea. But I guess I didn't feel uncomfortable moving here. I think that probably being American from New York and living in San Francisco, there's a cool factor in that that played to my advantage for the acceptance as a foreigner to the country. And I would say that I had a relatively smooth transition being a woman of color here. I asked Aitia to describe dating in Australia. The dating scene in Australia, and like I'll even say that I, I can't necessarily blanket statement Australia per se. I can only speak about Sydney in particular. And I'd say that I, I didn't think the dating scene was amazing at all. I think it's one of the the downfalls of Australia that I think is really unfortunate is the dynamic between men and women. I was used to courting um, in the States. I found men to be quite forward in, in their interest and really into the point that you're just like, I'm not interested, please leave me alone. <laughs> but they weren't shy. Whereas here, I felt like men were practically asexual, literally doubting like, okay, am I not pretty enough? Am I not interesting enough? <laughs> What's going on? Are, are they interested at all? Do I need to be more forward? How do I need to navigate this? This just feels like a lot of hard work there. So it wasn't a courting scene. My take on part of what's happening is that there's a lot of single sex schools. So my impression is that there isn't this healthy relationship that happens between young people at a young age in terms of how to interact. Um, with each other, it was very much if you weren't in the same circle to begin with, whether that be in friend circle or work circle, or had some prior connection, then people were just a little less likely to come out of their shell and start new conversations. And that's whether it's friendship or romantic. In general, there was a lot more effort that had to be put into being like, hey, hey, you over there, I actually, you know, want to talk to you. I'm interested in you. You almost had to put a sign on your forehead. And that was new. I'd been posting on Facebook of how horrible of a time I was having on the dating scene. And, and I would say this is not just Australians that I was dating, it's foreigners that were living in Australia, but there's something about Sydney that was bringing this out of them, I feel like. But my boyfriend and I had become Facebook friends through some mutual friends kind of earlier um, in the year, and he had been seeing my trials and tribulations on the dating scene and occasionally would like something or, or comment on something. But we hadn't actually met in person yet. It was quite like later in the year that we met in person. And I just went over and, and, and thanked him for something he'd helped me with earlier in the year and said, hey, it was nice to meet you in person. And then from there, we started talking some more and and then eventually started dating. But it was definitely a hard slog <laughs> in the beginning like, to the point that I was just like, I think I'm just going to become a lesbian. It's just easier. Like, I don't know. It's just the male dating scene. It was just not, it was not it at all. Aitia started in Sydney and now lives in Brisbane. I asked her, what was the catalyst for the move? My boyfriend uh, lived a bit north of, of Brisbane. We were doing long distance for two and a half years while I was in Sydney. And he was here uh, in Queensland. 
Every time I came to visit, I felt really calm because Sydney was starting to feel like New York for me. It was getting a bit more hectic, I guess, than my time here in, in Brisbane whenever I'd come to visit. Uh, of course, he'd come down to visit Sydney as well. And But he was living up on the coast, which is beach, which for most people, that'd be lovely. But for me, I, I was insanely bored by. We basically agreed that if you're willing to move to Brisbane, the city, then I'm willing to move from Sydney. But part of the reason I couldn't move any earlier was because I was going through the sponsorship and needed to uh, still stay in Sydney <laughs> and to be eligible for that. I, I, so I transitioned careers while I was in Sydney as well to user experience design. I went to school down there. At that point, when I graduated, I was open to positions both in Sydney and in Brisbane and seeing which was coming through first. But then I got to a point, I was like, oh, I'm just going to fully commit to Brisbane and look for positions up there instead. Really, I, I had nothing tying me to Sydney anymore. I didn't have my, you know, I didn't have an apartment. Of course, I had my friends, but still have my friends. <laughs> and I was going to yeah, really give it a go with our relationship by being like, let's move in together up here in Brisbane. The timing worked out well in, in terms of no longer um, needing to be committed to staying in Sydney. And he was said willing to move to, to Brisbane. So, yep, it's been July will make one year. I asked Aitia about being in an intercultural relationship and how was her experience thus far? And how did she successfully navigate it? Language is more of a factor than I would have thought. Even though we all speak English, there's different vernacular that's being used. And so when you're in a relationship, you have to make sure that you communicate well. But um, having using the same words and being able to understand your partner quite literally what they're saying is part of that. So there definitely are times where I'm just like, I really actually legit do not understand what you just said. Either it was the accent or it was the words that he used. <laughs> that was another another dynamic in understanding each other. Thankfully, he's quite worldly person and had traveled quite a bit. We have perspective-wise an outlook on life. We're quite aligned as individuals. That's broaching culture. This is the first time of me dating someone with children, of which their children were very much young and in their life. He basically has children 50% of the time when we first met. So I was like, oh, playing stepmom-ish for, for three children, and two younger boys and a teenage now woman. <laughs> She's uh, 18. And so like that was that was new in terms of having instant family <laughs> even though like i was in sydney for the most part of this i was trying to get to know them while not living here trying to make sure that i get to know them across that span of time as well was just just putting in yeah that effort to make everyone feel comfortable in that space and getting to know his family as well and him coming over to meet my family there's He's in pretty much every video chat that I have with my mom. <laughs> He's involved <laughs> at some point in it. My family knows him well. He's only been to the States once to hang out with my family. They know who he is. They ask and check in, you know, with him. So that's been great to be able to bring him into the fold of friends and family as well. In terms of being intercultural, it's not new for me to date someone that's not of the same race. That wasn't new to me or a different nationality. I was doing that when I was living in the States. Those aspects weren't necessarily new here 
for me in Australia. Now, whether they were new for other people who were observing it, different story maybe, because we have an age difference and as well as ethnicity and nationality. We definitely do occasionally get some look as people try to figure out what that dynamic is. His daughter is taller than me and looks more grown than me when she does all her makeup up and whatnot. So I could see people kind of wondering like, oh, is that, is he dating the friend, the daughter's friend? Who is that? Is the daughter? You can see it on their faces trying to figure it out in the mall. It's funny. If I took it personally, all the times that people looked and stared at me or wondered or asked me questions or came up to me, I'd be in a ball in a corner somewhere. I asked Aitia about the Australian response to COVID-19 and what her impressions were of the response. Look, I'd say this is probably one of the best places to be, except for maybe New Zealand. I say that because we have had restrictions, but probably not as many restrictions as what I've seen on the news in other countries. And I'd say that's been a mix of one, we just have a lot less people <laughs> in the country and thus they're spread out. We have, I think it was like about 24 million people in a country that's pretty much the size of the US. We have, we have a bit more space to move around and, uh, and the lifestyle is very much, people have really big terraces and, and, and backyards and stuff. So you can be in self-isolation, but still not feel like you're cooped up in like a tiny apartment. So if anything, I was just like, oh, I got to enjoy my backyard a bit more. <laughs> People weren't really wearing masks in wide scale. Yes, there are moments of things being off the shelves, but that didn't last for long. It wasn't a supply issue. It was People were just in panic mode initially. I feel like we've been, this quote unquote lockdown hasn't really been as severe as it's probably been in, in other locations and where the tr community transition hasn't been as high and cases in general weren't, weren't as high. I do think that they did get on top of it play sooner than maybe some other places. Even at the height of, of this lockdown, we were still able to go out to exercise and to take a walk. It wasn't like, oh, you just had to go to the grocery store and come back home. I felt like there were restrictions in place to make sure that people were in a safe space and distance and whatnot, but it wasn't this complete, you need to be in your house at all times. I, I appreciated that. Because Aitia is an avid traveler, she started the Women of Color Travel Facebook group. And I asked her to describe to me why she created it and what the community is like. I was wanting to create a space where women of color felt like there were other women of color who were doing what they were doing in terms of traveling and to share their stories and their experiences and encourage and inspire other people to, to do the same. It's a group of about a little over 700 women. And except for me, it was very important to not have it just be a group just for black women. I wanted it to be a group for women of color. I was asked to join my group with another group that was specifically for black women traveling. And I, I personally declined. And that for me, I don't know, I've, I've never really quite seen myself only in a box. <laughs> for me, I think it was really important to embrace the experiences personally of women in color more holistically. That for me was, was an important driver. If you haven't figured out thus far, Idea is incredibly ambitious and she is a serial entrepreneur. She has currently, or at least at the time of our recording, three ventures. And I asked her to break it down for us. What were her businesses and what were their origin stories? 
I created Leaping for Change, which is a, in this moment, it's a um, private Facebook group, but eventually I will be um, offering paid programming within it. And it's for people who are looking to either move abroad, go on long-term travel, to change jobs or change careers, uh, to be supported and prepared through that process because it can be overwhelming and daunting. <laughs> that was uh, being approached one-on-one about my transition into user experience design and my the places that I've lived and, and if I could talk people through that. And I found that I was able to serve people better in a, in a group environment and have people be able to help each other out through that. I created IST Roams. It's an e-commerce store and it provides comfortable and fashionable travel and lifestyle goods. I wanted people to feel confident and comfortable, whether they're on the plane or train or working out in their in their the kind of daily lifestyle and not have and to be like kind of no muss, no fuss clothing and still look good. Things that didn't need to be ironed and I only do carry on. So things that could be lightly packed away and could go with various outfits as well. The logo is of a woman who has big, bold, curly hair, and um, she has a map of the world on her face. And she's definitely ready to to go and explore. And on her shoulder is a a plane. IST is Rome is my initials in roaming on this world. And I created that really because there were so many things. That I'm like, I wish I had this on a shirt. I wish I could. <laughs> I wish I had a shirt that would say what I'm thinking and feeling while I was on this long term. Um, trip and some of it was positive some of it was negative and I also I love collecting clothing from around the world and and I realized that there was these you know pair of leggings that seen have seen the world with me <laughs> so I wanted to have some something that people could have with them that can also they can take around the world and that's their travel shirt so that's that's kind of the story behind IST Roams and I eventually do want to have not only my branded stuff, but a collection of things of my kind of my favorite things, kind of like Oprah's favorite things, <laughs> my favorite things that I've found around the world, bags that I've loved, dresses, and be able to make that available to people to to purchase as well. So a luxury access club is kind of one of my new business ventures that I'm working on as well. Basically, what it allows people to be able to do is to be to enjoy the amenities and the facilities of a luxury hotel without having to be an in-house guest. Basically being able to have a day pass up to, for up to 24 hours to use these facilities. And it's targeted towards people who are either locals or you have a long layover or you work remotely and you wanna work from a hotel instead of a co-working space. Or if you're already on vacation and you are staying in another accommodation but you wanna check out another accommodation. so. There are all kinds of reasons why people may not need to actually book a room, but still want to patronize a a resort or a luxury hotel. I'm really excited to see where that's going and, and liking the energy and how well that's being received from people. I asked Aitia to give some advice about starting a business abroad. Advice for starting a business abroad? Look, really trying to connect with the entrepreneur community, rather, in your, your country, whether that be through meetups or co-working spaces, but really trying to, or, or Facebook groups or what have you, LinkedIn groups, but really trying to get connected with other entrepreneurs is is like really huge in that space because then they can help navigate things for you and just just great people to know 
having some finances to help you get through that. So not only personal finances that help you get through your month-to-month expenses, but the extra finances that you'll have to be able to fund the business until it's able to get to a point where it can help fund you. (laughs) And just say the network part of it is is really huge because particularly countries where people feel like oh they don't they want to work with someone who has local experience or someone who understands a local market the alignment if you can get aligned with with locals and whether that be the, through collaboration or just people to introduce you to other people and then that'll help people feel comfortable that you understand the local market if you are trying to do a location-based business. Uh, if you're trying to do something that is you know, purely online and your target audience, rather, is not any particular nationality or and whatnot, then, then all good. That's great. I do, I would say, like, try to make sure you have something that can have some kind of online aspect that you can be able to scale you'll have to think about oh, what currency you want to offer things in time zones or something that you're aware of and how you're going to navigate time zones and and have people be able to see things in their time zone as well and make them aware of time zones and your availability in the time zones the banking as well <laughs> how you your funds what you, understanding what your requirements are to be able to open up whatever you need to that you can receive your money I wanted to know how Aitia's definition of wellness had been influenced by her travels abroad and now her living abroad in Australia. I think that my definition of of wellness has definitely evolved. And I feel like that's probably an evolution that's come with age, (laughs) as well as the experience of having traveled and now living abroad. While wealth accumulation is still high on my priority list (laughs) that's become coupled with me being happy as well not running myself in the ground having this time to take those breaks for meditation and stretching during the day taking walks and walk a lot more getting out in in nature a lot more as well spending more time writing and thinking (laughs) my money is not spent on material things it's very much spent on experiences didn't have as many possessions for a good portion of about three years or so while I was traveling and then getting settled here in Australia so I was able to live a more minimalist lifestyle really interested in in having a more balanced aligned lifestyle and if things are not in alignment with that then it's not in my circle and being more vocal about being my whole self I had three different LinkedIn accounts because I didn't want people who were in the construction world or in my to know my, my design world and people in the design world to know about my entrepreneurship and then people in this realm. And I was like, oh my God, this is hectic. I've you know, it combined them all and said, hey, look, this is me. This is all of me. And if you don't like it, then you're welcome to no longer follow me. <laughs> like, and people are, are actually, you know, they're loving it. And for those who, who aren't, I guess they're not following along. I have no idea. But um, I'm not worried. I think wellness has been being more comfortable with self and more explicitly stating who I am um, to others. They can either be aligned with that or not. (laughs) And wanting to be more happy in my career and finding my stride in my career and making sure that I don't kill myself in the process of doing that. What an awesome story. Thank you so much, Aitia. If you're interested in keeping up with Aitia, you can. 
follow her on her social media. Either my LinkedIn, Itia Thomas, I-T-I-A-H, Thomas, T-H-O-M-A-S. So my Women of Color Who Travel is a Facebook group. Leaping for Change Facebook group. Luxuryaccess.club is the website for the landing page right now. On Instagram, those are all kind of the same handles as well. IT Thomas is Instagram as well, and same with, with Twitter. So istroams.com for the e-commerce store. Pick your poison. <laughs> it depends on whatever whatever platform, but I'm in I'm pretty much on all of them. That's how you can find me. Thank you again, Idea. And thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed the episode, please be sure to support the podcast via Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Flourish Foreign. Also via Cash App, dollar sign Flourish Foreign. If you're interested in placing an ad with the podcast, go ahead and check out www.flourishintheforeign.com slash contact and drop me a line. Also, if you identify as a woman of color podcaster, aspiring or current, Definitely be sure to check out the WOC Podcasters Insiders Membership. It is a fantastic membership. I'm a member of it, and it really provides so many great insights for so many different levels of podcaster. If you are a beginner to an intermediate and advanced, if you're just starting out and trying to figure out the idea and the equipment to trying to scale your podcast and increase listenership, or even if you're trying to monetize your podcast, this membership is really fantastic and I highly recommend it. If you're interested in joining the membership, be sure to use the Flourish in the Foreign affiliate link, which is located on the website. And you can also access it through the link on the bios of all of our social media. So any of the social media bio links. So please utilize our affiliate link. It's a no extra cost to you, but helps support the podcast. And of course, thank you to Zachary Higgs, who produced the music of this here podcast. Zachary is an exceptional artist and producer, and if you need music for your next project, he is your guy. I'm going to leave all of his information in the show notes. And this week, I would love for you to take some intentional action, some intentional wellness action. So maybe after you do your journaling or your meditation, your prayer work, whatever it is, and you get kind of this urge or a new idea pops into your mind. And it might be completely strange. Like, what? That doesn't make any sense. This week, I want you to take intentional, urgent action on that. Whatever insight that comes, whatever kind of divine urge or pull this week, I want us all to urgently act on that. That's what this week's wellness practices is about being in tune when the divine, the universe, whatever you want to call, says, hey, why don't you try this? Why don't you move here? And instead of analyzing it to death, and I am super guilty of that, let's just act. Let's take it and just intentionally and urgently act on it. And let's see what happens. All right. Okay, that is it for this week. 
Take care of yourselves. Please be gentle. See you next week. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I went to the first class and after the instructor, she says to me, would you like the class? And I said, I had a good time, but I really need to know where you get these shoes. They're beautiful. Like these tango shoes, I've never seen them before. She says, oh, well, they're imported from Argentina and uh, you should probably wait until you're sure about the dance before you go in, invest in expensive shoes. And I was like, lady, just tell me where to get the shoes. I don't care if I ever dance tango again, but I stuck with the dance and I literally never stopped 